All right, you should open your Bible to that passage, John chapter 15, uh, starting in at verse 18. Navigate on your device, telephone, well, I guess it's not telephone, cell phone. Can we call, can we, telephones are gone, right? Anybody have a telephone? Who has a telephone at home still? I won't embarrass you, sorry. <laughs> I love you too much to do anything. It's the new me. God bless you. If I ever need a telephone, I know where to get one now. Praise the Lord. <laughs> John chapter 15, verse 18, the topic, the world hated Jesus, it hates you too. Title of our message, you hate me, you really, really hate me. Let's pray. Father, we uh, have come this morning for many different reasons, some, some that we don't even understand, just as we've been prompted, Lord, to be here by your Holy Spirit. We expect to hear from you. We talk about this as your living word, and we have the Holy Spirit within us, and you're here walking among us. And so we absolutely expect you to speak with us today through the word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The answer is Adolf Hitler is the answer to the question, who is number one on lists of the most hated person in history? Other potent, potentates include Ivan the Terrible and a handful of other Russians, Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, Saladin, and Chairman Mao. Bloody Mary, anyone? Queen Mary I tops the women's lists. We should add two names, Jesus and yours. Jesus said, since the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He doesn't say if, he says since. Most of us don't seem to be experiencing the hatred Jesus spoke of. Nevertheless, all of us are subjected to it if you look behind the scenes. You are the special hatred of the person behind all the insane dictators throughout history. The devil hates you. The Bible says he accuses you day and night before God. He is described as a lion on the hunt to devour you. Towards that end, the devil has a malevolent agenda that he employs non-believers to carry out against believers. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the Lord you love is the world's hated man. And number two, the Lord who loves you sends you to love the haters. Let's take a look at the Lord being hated. I jotted down here, haters gonna hate. If you want something that sounds more academic, J.C. Ryle says, let us realize that human nature never changes, that the carnal mind is enmity against God. In other words, non-believers are the enemies of God and against God's image in his people. Let us settle it in our minds that no holiness of life or consistency of conduct will ever prevent wicked people hating the servants of Christ, just as they hated their blameless master. Let us remember these things and then we shall not be disappointed. And so let's put in at verse 18 and see how this develops in the mind of the Lord. If the world hates you, since the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If means since, as I've said, the world most definitely hated Jesus, and therefore you can be certain that it hates you. Now theologians parse the biblical concept of the world different ways, depends on who you're reading. Uh, I came across five ways that they speak of the world. They're as good as any. 
Uh, they talk of the physical world, the human world, the moral world, the temporal world, and the coming world. The physical world includes all of creation, but mainly refers to Earth, where we live. This is where all the action is. You can think all you want that there's life on Mars or that we're going to encounter aliens and stuff, but all the action in the universe is happening right here. This is the devil's headquarters. We are the apple of God's eye, um, and so the Earth. The human world is all the people living on Earth. The moral world are the people in the world who are indifferent or hostile to God as opposed to believers. And we live in what is a temporary world that will be destroyed in favor of the coming world. For our purposes today, the world means the indifferent and hostile people on earth who are in spiritual darkness. Satan is the god of that world, of mankind. He employs one-third of the created angels. Uh, now, uh, it's nice to outnumber someone two, th two to, uh, well, what would that be the ratio? Anyway, two-thirds to one-third. I was going to say two to one, but that's not it, is it? Man, where, where was I when public education was big? I don't know. But anyway, so he's got one-third of the fallen angels, right, or of the angels who are now fallen, and lots of supernatural creatures such as principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So there's a lot more supernatural beings than we normally think of. He additionally has multitudes of human boots on the ground, the Bible says he takes captive non-believers to help him carry out his will against God's people. You can read that in 2 Timothy 2.26. It doesn't mean non-believers are possessed. It means that they are in a position to be influenced by the devil. They've, they've bought into his system, to his agenda about what's happening, and they are ready to be used as tools to persecute Christians. The forces of evil marshaled against us are indeed formidable. Or I like, who is it? Is the British they say formidable? I like that. It's formidable. For our part, we may be few, but we are strong because he indwells us. Do you every day expect to be hated by the world? Are you surprised when you are not hated? It isn't defeatist. It isn't anything like that. It's realistic. It does no good, and it may bring harm to sugarcoat the opposition of the world. Early warning of storms preserve life. Consider yourself in a state of constant early warned. The Lord warned you this night, so many centuries ago, that you would be hated by the world. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. These verses are full with what we are going to call uber uplifting. I mean, just uh, the word encouraging doesn't quite grab it. You're going to get tired of me saying uber uplift, but that's okay. You'll remember it. The first uber uplift is that since you are hated by unbelievers without cause, it is evidence that you belong to Jesus. You are among those Jesus chose out of the world. And that's a cause for rejoicing. Lord, these people hate me because they hate you. They see you in me. I'm doing something that, that brings their hatred. Praise the Lord. I'm uplifted. Uh-oh, did Jesus just say chose? Yes, he did, but not in the sense of choosing them for salvation. This is not the doctrine of election. He wasn't looking back to eternity past. They were in the world when Jesus chose them to serve him. Jesus chooses you, too, after you are saved to serve him. 
When you believe Jesus, he gives you the gift of God the Holy Spirit indwelling you. For his part, God the Holy Spirit gives you a supernatural gift or multiple gifts. He does it according to his own determination, not ours, but nevertheless, we are gifted and can now minister to people in a way that helps them eternally. Uber uplift number two. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. They would be sent out to share Jesus. They would be hated, which led to persecution. To be persecuted for the Lord is a third uber uplift, or it can be if we understand it properly. Some people would keep their word. Non-believers would hear the word and be saved, born again, immersed into the life of the church and receive the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. Your sharing of the gospel, however brief or complete, might plant a seed in the heart of a non-believer or water a seed already planted. It might even harvest that seed as you would get the opportunity to lead someone to Christ. A person headed to hell is thus transformed by your witness. What a save that is. Is that not uplifting? It is, number four. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus repeatedly told his followers that he and God the Father were one. He said that if you saw him, you saw the Father. The Jewish leadership refused to believe that Jesus was equal with God. They convinced themselves Jesus was a blasphemer. If the Jews thought Jesus was a blasphemer, it will extend to all those who follow him throughout the centuries. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Of course, they had sin. Every human conceived, Jew or Gentile, has sin imputed to them. The way it's described is that if, if, you, know, you, if you had a heavenly bank account with sin on one side and righteousness on the other, uh, you, 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 when you're conceived, you've got tons of sin on, on the one side and no righteousness. In fact, you never get any righteousness until you receive Christ. And so you, it, just by being uh, conceived, you have sin imputed to your spiritual account. If you're born and live, every human inherits a sin nature. Babies are so cute. The toddlers are so lovable. And they're sinners. And you, you can see it in their behavior. They're selfish, whining, crying, I want what I want and I want it now kind of a situation. They, you know, and it's, 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 uh, it's, even that is cute until they're 16. <laughs> and you swear they're still wearing diapers. I mean, it's like, you know, I want what I want and I want it now. And, and, so, and you recognize it in your own life. There's something wrong with you. You have a sin nature. You want to do some things but can't. You don't want to do other things, but, but you, you know, you do. Uh, and you throw up your hands like Paul did in Romans 7 and say, oh, wretched man that I am, who, who can deliver me from all this? And we commit individual sins, falling short of the glory of God. We, we do actually sin. A.W. Pink writes, the generation to which Jesus came bore a greater responsibility than any previous generation 
because men and women of earlier days had not heard his teaching or seen his mighty works as his own contemporaries did. His own contemporaries, for the most part, rejected his teaching and refused to admit the evidence of his works. Therefore, they compared unfavorably with pagans like the Queen of Sheba, who was impressed by Solomon's wisdom, or the people of Nineveh, who repented at Jonah's preaching. Indeed, the cities which had been the centers of his ministry would receive severe judgment on the great day than the sinners of Sodom. Jesus made that statement at one point because they sinned against greater knowledge. They had greater light. God holds a person accountable for the witness he or she has received. Before the gospel comes to a person, they have the witness of conscience within and creation without. Pricked by their conscience, we know that there's good and evil, and aware that there is a creator, unless you're an imbecile, and think that everything just happened from nothing, God expects them to seek him. And if they do, he will provide more revelation sufficient to lead to salvation. You might argue with that and think, well, wait a minute. I don't see that. Acts chapter 17, Paul said God has scattered men all over the earth. He did it. He did it. So that why? They would not know him? No, so that they would seek him and find him and know him. I don't know how that works, but I trust God. I believe God. And so uh, conscience, creation, leading to greater revelation sufficient to lead to salvation. There's no excuse in most of the civilized world to refuse the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. We have conscience and creation and Christians sharing the gospel. We see their changed lives. We hear the word of God in power. It's super accessible to most of the Western world. And so there's no excuse. We're sinning against light. Verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. The Jewish leaders convinced themselves that they were so in love with God the Father that they must murder Jesus to preserve and protect his glory. Jesus says you can't hate him and love God. G.K. Chesterton said, there are those who hate Christianity and call their hatred an all-embracing love for all religions. <laughs> I love that. All, let's get all religions together. And then the Christian comes and they say, we hate you. Why? Because you say you're the exclusive way, truth, and life. But more than that, that way is Jesus who died on the cross for sin. And so you're saying we're sinners who need this help and can't help ourselves. And all the other religions, of course, say, oh, of course you can help yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It doesn't work. If non-believers hate Jesus so much, why do they seem, for the most part, so indifferent about him? They may not be hearing all of the gospel. I guess what I'm getting at here is that, you know, when we read the book of Acts, we read the New Testament, we see constant persecution and, and terrible things going on. Tomorrow, many of us go back to work or to school or wherever we go, and people might be non-believers, but they, you know, they may not be acting in active hatred towards you. And so you think, well, you know, I, I guess I'm okay. You know, people don't really hate. Uh, but but it, it's maybe because they haven't heard the gospel. The first martyr of the church age was Stephen. Giving an answer for himself to the Jews, he reviewed the history of Israel. It was all going so well until he said this, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. Oh, wow. Stephen might have lived if this had been branded hate speech by Twitter. And, you know, that, that, but he said, hey, this is, here's the history. And they're like, wow, yeah, I remember that. And then they say, and in all your history, you always killed the prophets and persecuted those of, who brought righteousness. And you made the wrong decisions, and now you've killed the Savior. Stephen told them they were sinners, a point often suppressed. What ever happened to sin? In 1973, psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote a book with that title. In a review I read, I learned that, and I quote, in his book, the doctor projected the day would come when sin would no longer be a descriptor of human behavior. He speculated that the explanation of sin and wrongdoing would be replaced by rationalizations, including individual, excusing rather, individual accountability. Menninger predicted the term sin would be replaced with words like illness, disorder, dysfunction, syndrome, etc. The human condition would be excused as a product of biochemistry, environment, experience, and trauma. He projected that even crime would go unpunished as criminal activity would be justified and minimized as a result of some medical abnormality for which one could not be held responsible. 1973, he saw that future. It's another type of replacement theology, replacing repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ with these other things. People need to know they're sinners. They need salvation, which can only exclusively be found by believing Jesus. The cross is thus an offense to those in the devil's kingdom of darkness. There's a long illustration, but I'll just cut it down. You are not going to wear a parachute on a commercial jetliner from here to wherever you're going for 16 hours. You're just not going to do it. Unless the plane is going to crash, then, yeah, then you put that thing on. And so a lot of times we just, people don't need their, they don't know they're going to crash. They don't understand that they're sinners. An illustration, you know, maybe, maybe you're speeding. I know none of you would speed. But maybe you're speeding. And you get lit up, pulled over. And you say, officer, all of these other people were going a lot faster than me. Okay, what does that mean? Are you, did you break the law? Yeah, but you should be going after the greater lawbreakers, the Hitlers and the Mao Zedongs and those people. I'm just a little guy in Hanford and you're a sinner and you need help. And that help comes at the cross. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. The works which no one else did were the innumerable miracles the Lord performed. Incredible healings, dramatic exorcisms, raising the dead. Those were predicted in the Old Testament as evidence of the Messiah. No one else but the Savior of the world could do those works. Those works being true history, they are still evidence Jesus was the Messiah the savior of the world. They happened, these things happened and were recorded as history. And so, you know, people say, why, why don't we see people getting raised from the dead? Well, how about, let's just talk about Lazarus. We know Lazarus was raised. How many people do you have to raise from the dead? Five, 10, 20? And then you think, okay, we get it. One would be enough for me, right? And, and likewise, everything else. And yet Jesus did multitudes of, of things. The sheer weight of them is overwhelming. 
Verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Several times in the Psalms, David reported he was hated without cause. I think we are on Uber uplift number five. When you are hated solely for Christ's sake, you are fulfilling scripture. They hated me without a cause. What happened today at work, honey? They hated me without a cause. Praise the Lord. Let's go celebrate. Hey, what do you guys say, you little hat? Hey, what are you guys celebrating? People at work hated me without a cause because I'm a Christian. An unhuman, inhuman, inhumane despot is the God of this world. The Rolling Stones barely scratched the surface of Satan's hatred for Jesus and Christians when they sang, I rode a tank, held a general's rank, when the blitzkrieg raged and the bodies stank. We see his hatred expressed in the moral world, or I guess we might say the immoral world now. Christian values are imploding. Uh, just one example, I don't want to get off track. Did you know that America has the highest rate of children living in single-parent households in the world? In the world. Now, I have to preface this longer than I want to, but I want to. If you're a single parent, this is not a slam on you. Everybody has their own, you know, situation. Uh, so don't think, you know, that, that I'm talking about something awful that you did. But I think we would all agree that single parent homes are not ideal. And somehow more homes than we want to have become single parent homes through divorce and different things like that, right? So, uh, so it's a problem. And it's a problem of selfishness, quite honestly. And, uh, and it's rampant. So I just picked that out. There's tons of statistics that are, you know, th that hit home less. But when you start to think, oh, wait a minute, this is a downfall. I, I know, you know, people always got divorced, but it used to be hard to get a divorce. And um, I never thought my mom and dad would ever get divorced. Maybe they killed each other, but they would never, <laughs> never get a divorce. I mean, there was a, a security I can't imagine that kids don't have anymore in certain situations. And again, I'm not saying your situation, you've done anything wrong. Uh, you were probably wronged. So don't think that you're failing. I mean, God has grace and strength for you as a single parent. But the truth is, um, I, I do sometimes think about that. And I think, you know, for all the dysfunction of my family, because everybody's family is a little bit dysfunctional, it was a, there was a security there. You know, the, the, my dad was going to bring home enough money to take care of us no matter what. My mom was going to take care of it. My brother, you know, we, we had this security that people don't have anymore as they bounce around and stuff and so uh, we're making decisions somebody's making decisions that are leading us down uh, the wrong path we're kind of living right now in the first chapter of the book of romans you can read it later verses 18 through 32 in terms of outward hostility towards god powers that be are indoctrinating children to believe irrational lies about biology and sexuality and truth in general Spend only a little time on social media or watching the news, and it becomes clear that hatred for all that is righteous is the prevailing atmosphere. And so we uh, are in a terrible time of implosion. As much as we work to effect change, as individually led, no real lasting change will come unless sinners' hearts are transformed. The gospel and nothing else 
is that power of God unto salvation. People change, cities change, nations change when they turn to righteousness. The Lord who loves you sends you to love the haters. John Newton wrote, when we look at the ungodly, we are not to hate them, but to pity them, mourn over them, pray for them, nor have we any right to boast over them, for by nature and of ourselves, we are no better than they. What is so amazing about grace is that we can share the love of God for them to the haters. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Jesus came as God in human flesh, the God-man to die on the cross, so that a person might be declared righteous by believing him. He is the only way, the only truth, he's the only life. For the purpose of our salvation, God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit to us, to dwell in us when we believe. He continually sets our affections and attentions on Jesus. In that sense, the Holy Spirit can be called the Spirit of truth because he testifies of Jesus. He is a person, fully God, along with the Father and the Son, but he has a unique ministry subordinate to the Father and the Son. And so we see the Trinity, the unity of, of the Godhead, and then we see them having different responsibilities, uh, not lesser than one another, but equal. The Trinity's confusing, I know. One of the early Christian creeds declares this regarding our God in Trinity. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as foresaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. I don't know about you, but that really cleared it up for me. Yeah. <laughs> I've mentioned before to you, but I should do it again. I don't want you to be embarrassed. There are no good illustrations for the Trinity. They're all bad. Uh, the, the famous one is ice, uh, water, and steam, right? Uh, because water can exist in those three states, but not at the same time. It's actually a, a, an argument for what's called modalism. You know, God, Jesus is, you know, this, then he's that, then he's that, but he's, there aren't three, there's just one. And so don't try and give an illustration. It's, you know, quite honestly, you, the most you can say to a person is the Bible absolutely teaches the Trinity. Here's a quick definition of it. Let's talk about what's really important to you, the fact that you're going to go to hell and then have an eternity to wonder why you didn't get it. And so control the situation. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The word also indicates that their witness follows receiving the Holy Spirit. Their witness was unique, seeing they were 11 guys who knew more about the Lord than anyone on the earth. But that was not enough. They must rely on the Spirit. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't because, oh yeah, we were with Jesus. I remember that night, plain as day. Came in, all of a sudden the roof started crumbling. You know, and all their stories aside, they needed the Holy Spirit to guide them and to direct them in, into what would be powerful to the saving of the soul. 
Speaking to pastors, Jay Adams said, you must not exhort your congregation to do whatever the Bible requires of them as though they could fulfill those requirements on their own, but only as a consequence of the saving power of the cross and the indwelling, sanctifying power and presence of Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 of chapter 16, these things I have spoken to you, you should not be made to stumble. Another uber uplift, this would be number six. How many of these is this guy going to have? I think this might be the last one. It's that we need not stumble when we experience hatred. The disciples would face excommunication and death. Remembering that Jesus was hated and martyred and that he had predicted the same for them, they would be able to stand and keep moving forward instead of stumbling and possibly retreating. We've adopted a slogan I picked up from one of our local police chiefs. When asked about a particular difficult task facing him at a particularly difficult time in uh, law enforcement, he replied calmly with resolve, it's the job. If you are where you are supposed to be doing the Lord's work, when opposition and hatred comes, it's the job to respond as God the Holy Spirit leads you. That's what you're called to do. One of the com uh, commentaries said, forewarned, forearmed, they must not look for a smooth course and a peaceful journey. They must make up their minds to battles, conflicts, wounds, opposition, persecution, perhaps even death. Like a wise general, Jesus did not conceal from his soldiers the nature of the campaign they were beginning. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he has done God a service. Excommunication, the word itself invokes terror. Harem is the Hebrew word. It is the total exclusion of a person from the Jewish community, including shunning them for life. During their time with Jesus on earth, the apostle Peter once said, we have left all and followed you. Little did Peter know that his life of leaving all and sacrificing was just starting. It would eventually intensify until he was crucified upside down, praising his Lord. Verse three, and these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. They refuse to recognize the Father at work in the words and deeds of Jesus. I cited verses in the first chapter of the book of Romans. There and here, a willful ignorance lies behind the rejection of Jesus. The unsaved know the truth, but deliberately suppress it. And if you get around to reading Romans, it's scary from a national point of view because it seems like what God does is at some point, he withdraws his uh, protection, as it were. And he says, if this is what you want to do, do it. And it doesn't take very long for that to deteriorate. And I would suggest to you, if you're, I don't know, I, I don't want to suggest an age, but take me, I'm 67, right? Things are deteriorating a lot faster than they were a decade ago. I mean, this whole... Um, there was a whole, and again, I hate to pick on one particular situation, but that's what's coming to mind. Back uh, maybe 20 years ago, you know, there was all this talk about AIDS and homosexuality, and you know, so, but it, it, it spanned a long period of time, you know, and, and, um, and then all of a sudden now, in the last, golly gee whiz, in the last about three years, look where we are in terms of what's happened. You know, there is no sexuality, people say. Biologically, you might be a man, you might be a woman, but it doesn't matter. 
because we want to talk about gender and we want to be woke and we want to do all these things. All I'm saying is that from a Christian point of view, from God's point of view, reading the word, it's as if God has said, well, I'm going to step back and, and show you how quickly this can deteriorate. And, you know, our society is, it's crumbling. It really is. And uh, we, need to, we need to really get in there with the Lord. A.B. Simpson, founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, not to be confused with Grandpa Abe Simpson, wrote this over 100 years ago. The chief danger of the church today is that it's trying to get on the same side as the world instead of turning the world upside down. Our master expects us to accomplish results, even if they bring opposition and conflict. Anything is better than compromise, apathy, and paralysis. God give to us an intense cry for the old-time power of the gospel and the Holy Ghost. Haters gonna hate, Christians gonna love, right? Amen. Amen.